Good. Acts chapter 23, before we read, let me pray. Father, we thank you that your word can teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness. May your word have all those effects on us tonight and give us new energy to serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Acts chapter 23, but just before that, uh, we're going to pick up on Acts chapter 22, verse 30. What's happened is there's been a big uh, hullabaloo, a fuss between uh, Jewish leaders and Paul, and uh, the man who stopped the fuss, a Roman army commander, wants to find out what the fuss is all about. And so, chapter 22, verse 30. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said, there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. 
they went to chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of poor sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Take the prisoner, uh, sorry, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he caught two of his centurions and said, Get ready, two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to killed, be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the, the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused of questions about their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. And so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. That's exciting, isn't it?
Well, the children get to get some exciting stories and learn about this passage when they go to their group. So we'll stop, we'll let them do that, and then we'll carry on in a moment. Okay, well, let's uh, start. And it's a lovely thing, isn't it, to think that God is in control. And we say that in church a lot. But is it really true? I mean, it's nice to think that God is in control when it's uh, a wonderful calm sea and everything is going in a wonderful holiday kind of atmosphere and life is good. But what happens when, well, <clears throat> it's not quite like that and instead of chaos, instead of control, it's more chaos. And here's the thing that we're going to learn on the Bible. That if you want to know where God's in control, don't look at the calm. You see his control in the chaos. When it seems that everything is not under anyone's control. And if you were here last week, you know the backstory, the story so far, is that the Apostle Paul is doing his best not to offend his Jewish friends, and so he goes to the temple and he does certain specific Jewish things, but people misunderstand him and they get angry with him. Paul explains they come until they get to the point where he says that actually, yes, he is completely Jewish. That reassures them. But people who are not Jewish can get close to God because of Jesus, without having to become Jewish first. At that point, they really uh, cannot stand him anymore. And uh, with that, the Romans have to dive in and get him out. But now the Roman commander, who is not Jewish, has to write a report on why there's been such a fuss between Paul and the Jews. And so what happens is he puts this whole council together in chapter 22, verse 30, and he wants to find out, but he gets nowhere. And the reason why you get this story in the Bible is to show you that when the Bible tells you that God is in control, it doesn't just put it out there like a statement. God is in control, right? Okay, write it down, believe it, that's it, job done. No, it doesn't work like that. When the Bible wants to tell us God's in control, it doesn't simply tell us. It shows us not a theory and a statement, but shows us it in practice, in reality, in a court case. It shows us that God's in control. That's how you find out he really is. And that's why this court case is in the Bible. It is because in this trial that you will discover how God works. Because through all the shouting and the plotting and the nighttime horse riding, God is going to do something to achieve a task, a purpose that he has in mind. So God is absolutely control in this out of control place. So I'm going to say that. Uh, and make that first point that God controls chaos. Chaos is when no one is control, right? Uh, in, in, in control. 
And in this meeting, it seems like no one is in control. So you take that big Roman army officer called a tribune here, rank of senior colonel in the British army, a man of substance. And he calls this uh, meeting together, and it seems that he is the one who is in control. It's all in his hands. He's got the authority to bring everybody together. He's running the show. But it all gets out of hand. He doesn't get the information that he wants. He's not in control to make it happen his way. What about the Jewish people? They're there in the room as well, aren't they? Uh, more than in the room, this is the Jewish top brass. The whole council, the people that you mentioned in chapter 22, verse 30, the ones who are the chief priests and the whole council. And you would think that with all that amount of seniority in the room, that they are going to be the ones who are absolutely in control and in charge. But what happens to them? They end up arguing amongst themselves. And they aren't in control either to get the result that they want. What about Paul? Well, Paul is the one who doesn't look like he's in control because he's the one in the dock, the one that everybody is having a go at. And but you wouldn't think that he was in control because in chapter 23, verse 10, they've got to go and they've got to literally stop him being torn apart to pieces. And it actually, he seems to be the one who's most in control of all. Because what he does is he says, this court case is not fair, I'm going to put a stop to it. And so what he does is he creates division in the council. And let me tell you, if Mrs. Theresa May was here this evening, she will tell you that it's really hard to have control over what happens if you've got a divided council. And Paul manages to get this divided council and therefore he takes all their control away from them. It's a bit like a family scene, isn't it? You've got the parents and you've got the sulky teenager. And the parents are very angry at the sulky teenager because the teenager is sulky. But what happens? They get cross, they get very angry and the teenager just stays sulky and keeps the cool and manipulates the parents at that point because the teenager is in control, not the parents. That's what's going on here. Paul is the one who hasn't got the authority, but he's the one who seems most in control. And he gets the end result that he wants. Well, Paul seems to be more in control than the Romans or the Jews, but actually there is one person in full control, and he is introduced to us in verse 11. Jesus, and he stands there, the Lord stands by Paul and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to me in Rome. Now we know from chapter 19, verse 21, that Paul himself wanted to go to Rome, but now Jesus says it is his plan to do that and it's the reason why there's all this chaos is because through the chaos is the way that Jesus gets him step by step closer to that destination and we'll see from now on that 
Paul is going step by step closer to that destination. Chaos won't stop him. Not even a storm, not even a shipwreck is going to stop God getting him to where he wants him. See the difference between Christianity and what other people think. Generally, non-Christians, pagans, think that God's in control when things are calm. Bible says, if you want to see God's control, look for chaos, because it's much more impressive to see God doing his work there. And therefore, that's where you will see him doing it. Ah, it was pretty chaotic, wasn't it, when Jesus died on the cross? A day of uh, violence, a lot of shouting, a lot of darkness, and God is doing his greatest work, Dorothy. Dorothy? God is doing his greatest work at that point when he died on the cross. A chaotic day. And he was saving the world for a future with him. Where one day he will bring the chaos in the world to an end. And until then, he will use chaos. He will work in chaos. Look at chaos. You will find God achieving his purposes. God controls the chaos. Second point, God controls pagans. You'd expect to read that God controls Christians. But here, the Christians are controlled by the Romans, who are pagans. And they are not in the slightest bit interested in Paul's God. They've heard Paul speak about Jesus. In Acts chapter 22, the Roman tribune was there listening, but at the end of it, he doesn't want to know about Jesus. He just wants to know about the fuss, why they're so angry with him. And yet God uses the Roman soldiers, the Roman army, who have nothing to do with him and believe in him. He uses them to keep Paul safe. So when there's a plot, it's the Roman army officer who starts making the plans. And God uses him to get Paul to the next stage of safety. Now, I don't know whether as you read these bits of the Bible or heard them read, uh, you've got a mind like mine, and little questions start to come into your mind. Did anyone ever wonder why this Roman wanted to find out so badly why there was a disagreement between Paul and the Jews. He was really trying hard, wasn't he? I mean, he nearly had Paul flogged in uh, chapter 22 and in verse uh, 24 that Paul should be examined by flogging. Why does he want to know so much? Why does he put him in the council to try and winkle out the truth? Why does he send him up the chain of command to find out, get Felix to find out what exactly is going on? Why does he want to know so badly? Doesn't tell us. And why? Why does he use such a, a huge army of swordsmen and 
horsemen and spearmen to get Paul out of the city <coughs> early in the morning when no one's awake in any case. Why? Such a huge guard of escort to get Paul to safety. We'd love to know, wouldn't we? But it doesn't say. But here's the interesting thing. You know when people hear us talk about the Bible and how we believe the Bible, usually what happens is actually you ask an expert who's not a Christian and they'll tell you that none of that is true. If you ever read the BBC, switched on and get a BBC documentary, I know the Bible says this, but we've got the experts and they say that and disagree with what the Bible says. Come on, you must have seen programs like that, must you? They're on all the time. Now let me tell you something interesting. When you step outside Bible history, which is what Acts chapter 23 is, and you go into history that's outside the Bible, written by the Jews and the Romans, the most famous Jewish writer of history was a man called Josephus, and a very, very important Roman historian was a man called Tacitus. And they tell us what was going on at this time. And what was going on at this time is that the tensions between Jews and Romans were reaching boiling point, to the point that they actually ended up in open warfare a couple of years later, but things are simmering and getting hotter and hotter, and we're getting near the point of explosion. And so what those historians tell us is that there is, at the moment, a massive confrontation brewing between the Jews and the Romans. So therefore, the Romans, they're the ones who've got to keep the peace, and therefore they've got to maintain justice. Therefore, they're not going to let the Jews just kill anybody they want. They've got to dive in and rescue Paul to make sure that he's safe, because they are in charge of justice. It's how you keep peace. They've got to do that. And therefore, that would explain the huge task force that they dispatched to keep Paul uh, safe on their journey. The large task force is just an indication of the large threat there is at the time. The large tension that there is at the time. That's why you need that number. But at the same time, they can't just simply wade in and rescue somebody and then everybody said, but this man deserved to die and so therefore they've got to make sure that the, what they're doing with Paul is fair, that they find out exactly what the facts are, that they want to get the information as to why there is this trouble between these two groups. And so that's why they go to this painstaking trouble of trying to get the information so they can be done and seen to be done fairly. And that way, no one will have a reason to accuse them of a bias. So that's why they want uh, Paul uh, flogged and the rest of it to try and get to the bottom of it. And so suddenly all of that going on in Luke chapter 23 now makes sense to us because actually God is controlling the whole situation. We discover that from the pagan writers outside the Bible, who tell us about the tensions and therefore why such great care is taken of the Apostle, because God is using all that, the outsiders, to keep his Apostle safe. God 
controls the pagans and includes the pagan writers who tell us what's going on. Now, what do you do, apart from enjoy the history lesson, what do you do if you're a real believer and you discover that you have a God who is absolutely in control of chaos, who is absolutely in control of everybody, what impact should that have on you? Here's the answer, Abigail. You want to live like a Pharisee. Let me explain. I've got a lot of explaining to do because Pharisee is a bad word in the Bible. Okay, Anybody who's read about Jesus will know the ones who are always against him are the Pharisees. And the reason they opposed him is not that they were bad people, but they were so good that they didn't need someone like Jesus to save them. And so therefore they asked, what's the point of him? Oh, he's there to save you from your sin. Oh, they say, that's interesting. What sin? We try hard to obey God. That's what we do. And last week we saw that Paul himself was brought up as a Pharisee on the wrong side of Jesus. So in chapter 22 and verses 3 and 4, you see um, Paul say, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, captain of Pharisees, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. That's me. Okay, number one Pharisee and number one Christian Jesus hater. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. So Paul was a strict Pharisee and a strict anti-Jesus person and therefore Pharisees are strictly anti-Christian. They've got to be bad, right? if that's what Pharisees are. So, here's my surprise when I look at verse 6, and I hear Paul saying, I don't want to hear that word ever again. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I am a Pharisee. Yeah, he was a bad Pharisee. But he's still claiming to be one. And he tells us why. He now follows Jesus with a desire to serve him as fully as he once tried to oppose him. But he was always wanting to do what was right in God's eyes. And so in verse 1 he says, There is no change in the way that he lived before God. He has always lived with a zeal for God. Sure, once it used to be misplaced, and therefore he needed to be forgiven by Ananias who baptized him and washed him and so on, because he'd got it wrong as a Pharisee, but the zeal to serve God was what he had, and nothing has changed. He's now going down a new track with all the Pharisee energy that he had before. Nothing held back. And in verse 5, he's a good Pharisee because he knows the law. 
you see, the high priest was happy to break the law, ordering Paul to be struck. And Paul calls him a whitewashed wall in verse 3. But he was told, look, this is the high priest you're talking to. You shouldn't speak to a high priest like this in verse 4. And so Paul says, I'm sorry, I didn't realize he was high priest. Because it is written in verse 5 that he should not speak evil of a ruler. And Paul is going to go by what is written, like Pharisees do. Now you might wonder, why didn't Paul know that that was the high priest? Is he blind? But actually, he didn't have the greatest eyesight. And there are little uh, notes I've got in your notes in Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 6, you can look at them later, where there are hints that Paul's eyesight was not that great. And he may not have been able to tell people apart if they were all the council together, all dressed in white, they would have looked like a white wall in front of him. And Jesus once used that description of a whitewashed wall to describe people who are wonderfully clean on the outside, but are full of evil on the inside. And the truth is that although Paul may not have seen the figures all that clearly, he actually saw things accurately because Ananias really was a whitewashed wall. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says of Ananias that he was a great hoarder up of money. And the bloke was just pure greedy. And Josephus says that when the temple tithes were brought in for the other priests, he would go in and he would take it off them and he would use violence to get what he wanted. So he really was a whitewashed tomb, looking good on the outside as high priest, but uh, inside uh, he is uh, greedy and dirty. And the smack that he orders right at the start of the trial shows that this trial is not going to be fair. And therefore Paul plays the Pharisee card to get people onto his side. And when he puts on his Pharisee badge, well, then half the room immediately know what side they are, they are on. And so, if he's a Pharisee and I'm a Pharisee, well, then we're, we're mates, aren't we? So, I'm sticking with him now. And what Paul does is he sees, he may not see uh, figures distinctly, but he sees the situation well. And he takes charge. He brings the trial effectively to an end because it was never going to be fair in the first place. And in the process, he says in verse 6 that he is a Pharisee because he thinks the same way as Pharisees do about the resurrection. So like I said before, Paul once was a Pharisee in a bad way but, and he had to be washed about that and forgiven for that. But, having got rid of the proud Jesus-rejecting past that he had, he then goes on to say, well, actually, but meeting Jesus, meeting the resurrected Jesus, actually showed me that my Pharisee belief in the resurrection was absolutely right. 
So I was right to be a Pharisee in those ways that I used to think. And I'm standing by that and now I'm plowing all my energy, my Pharisee energy into living for Jesus. Full on. The way that Pharisees do. But what can we learn from those things? First, I want to suggest that um, if uh, we aren't Christians tonight, then please do not think that God is only in control when things are calm. People on the doorstep, as George was telling us earlier, always tell us, don't they, I can't believe in a God who allows suffering. In other words, I can't believe in a God who allows chaos. Because, well, he can't be in control if chaos happens. But the truth is, if you look into chaos, you will see God and you can seek God to help you in new ways. People who've come through chaos have come through seeing God and seeking him in new ways and finding that he controls it. And so if your life has some chaos in it, it's a good time to see and to seek God's control. And it'd be lovely if we can help you to do that. Come and see me afterwards, we can have a conversation. But it's the chaos that often shows God is real and there and working. Second point is, what happens if you're churchy? Remember those uh, people in the temple? They were all churchy, weren't they? All the high officers in the church were there in the room. But Paul called them whitewashed wall. And I would suggest that a whitewashed wall is the kind of effect the church can have on you. If it's all about looking good on the outside. Especially on Sundays when Christians scrub up really well. But while they're scrubbing up well and turning up on Sundays and looking the part, inside there's the greed for money that Ananias had. Or there's other kinds of self-serving, which shows that there's a form of godliness on the outside but no power to be godly on the inside. Be careful of church and that effect. But what if you're a real believer and you might feel unsettled by unfairness, suffering, when it comes? And generally we, we pray for calm, don't we, when things go bad for us and we're unsettled by chaos. But God is here to tell us tonight, listen to him, that chaos can serve God's purpose to make us more effective for the gospel in a new way. And tonight, God's word for you is trust, have confidence, as he would say to Paul in verse 11, have courage that he is in control, that he controls chaos, that he controls those who don't want anything to do with him, but nonetheless he will bring to serve him. And when you trust him as 
fully as that, then you can serve him as fully as a Pharisee and fully live for him. And his word tonight is, think of a Pharisee as your model and put Pharisee energy into serving the gospel in your life and turn chaos into a gospel opportunity because that is what God uses his control to achieve. I think very often we tend to be a bit double-minded as Christians, a bit flat as Christians, a bit unenthusiastic as Christians, a bit uh, grey and dull as Christians. And God's word is, see Paul, see him say that he's a Pharisee and live this way for the gospel, but this is God's word to you, that you would take that great, great title. I know it's used badly, but take and make it your identity as a Pharisee Christian, full on for living for Jesus, because you have full confidence in him. Let's pray that God will help us to do that. I'm going to give you a minute. Uh, you pray your own prayer. After a minute, I'll finish up by praying. Let me turn this off for a minute and then I'll turn it back on again. Well, I'm minutes up, so let me finish with a prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you control chaos and that you can make anyone your servant to further your pur purposes. Help us to remember that, to have full confidence in you, in the chaos days, in the painful days. And forgive us when we are Pharisees in the wrong way and proud and unlike Jesus. And please forgive us when we have not been Pharisees in the right way either and we haven't lived wholeheartedly for you. We pray tonight that you will keep us confidence, confident and that you will keep us energized to live and serve the gospel with a full heart for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.